Hello everyone, it's January 5th, 2021. Happy New Year. Though it feels a little bit more like April 1st because SpaceX wants to catch super heavy rocket boosters by their grid fins. Is it crazy or is it genius? Or is it just SpaceX being both of those things at the same time? I don't know. Let's talk about it and lift off. Through the tower. Welcome to episode 291 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. And I'm Dennis. Yeah, no Ben this week, so we're doing that again. Mm-hmm. It seems that you guys have time off in pairs. I've noticed that. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I, if I remembered correctly, because I remember the last time it was only me and you, was when I was mm-hmm. driving across country to visit my folks back in New Jersey, and I was off in Oklahoma City, and I did the show from the hotel room. And I think, though, like the preceding week or whatever, I had taken off. Uh, or maybe the, the the one after that I had taken off. Or like, yeah, so we really do kind of double it up. So. kind of happens that way. But uh, I mean, yeah, it's a you know, hectic time of year, but we have uh, we are now in the new year. So happy new year to everyone. Happy, uh, 2021. happy 2021. And uh, I guess I have to say the, you know, obligatory. Here's hoping this one's better, which I'm sure it will be. Mm, yeah. I'm hoping it's just straight up good rather than better. Yeah. Being better <laughs> Set you up for trouble, but <laughs> yeah. So Ben's doing some home renovations and he's uh, having to catch up with some work as well. He just told us that he was like knee deep in drywall, so I think his uh, kitchen's <laughs> in the midst of being rebuilt. So you know he's happy, happily at work right now. I do kind of see Ben as like one of the like not like the seven dwarves, but somebody who just likes to like you know build things happily. Like he kind of whistles while you know. I don't. I don't know if he whistles while he works. He probably listens to podcasts instead. But it's the same principle. Um, and he's probably sawing timbers and things. <laughs> yeah, he's he's right at home in the you know. Well, I mean, he's he's still in a proper like you know city, but he's where he is is surrounded by nothing but like farms and crops, central Pennsylvania. So hopefully, he's got you know a lot of opportunity to be outdoorsy and woodsmanish. <laughs> So first news of the year um, is not really – well, yeah, it's news. Like nothing happened, but we got a cool tweet yeah. from Elon. Well, it was actually a reply of, like in a tweet. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it wasn't even a uh, an announcement. Which is how he a, does it. I know, right? Which is pretty wild. There must be a lot of people who just ask him random questions hoping for a bite because he, he doesn't seem to say anything it, like if he's not prompted. you know. Mm-hmm. So you have to say, hey, how about this? And then he just you know, like will give you a just like out of nowhere a response. ERC X space. So ERC X space. Space, yeah. uh had replied to an Elon tweet about uh, some other uh, robots with a really cool animation of a super heavy descent profile with it landing on uh, some legs, it looks like. But uh, Elon had something to say about that animation in particular, which kind of triggered, uh, you know, videos and Reddit threads. And I'm sure articles are now going to be written. Yeah, the question was essentially, uh, uh, you know, is this an accurate a depiction of super heavy landing on its legs, essentially. Elon kind of, I mean, I'll just read the tweet. I guess this will be maybe a good place to start. Uh, We're going to try to catch the super heavy booster with the launch tower arm using the grid fins to take the load, which suddenly was like, whoa. (laughs) And half the responses to that were like, you know, say that again. What now? Are you kidding? You know, like no one believes that, which (laughs) that's kind of how I felt. Mm -hmm. So I guess just to start off, my first thought was my semi hot take is uh, like if you have a booster that's always going to be landing in the same place and it can hover, then why not do that? Because you do save mass because you don't have to have landing legs. So is this something that actually makes sense? But obviously there's a whole slew of issues there that we're going to talk about. Mm. But yeah, so you have a list here about the pros and cons. Right. So yeah. So so of course, like in Elon fashion, right, he follows up with like a number of replies and, you know, 
he really is good at, you know as far as interacting with the rest mm-hmm. of you know social media on twitter at least uh, which is the only platform i'm on really <laughs> and so yeah so as far as pros go you know these these all make sense um it saves uh both the mass of the legs as well as the cost of them. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're, there's something to them. And, you know, if they have crush cores, you need to replace them after landings. It enables immediate repositioning of the booster onto the launch mount, right? If you make, you know, if you're catching it with the launch tower, the reason the launch tower is called the launch tower is because it's used for launches, right? And so, <laughs> but uh, the, the one I, I, I got to, again, here's another quote from the tweet, ready to refly in under an hour. Mm-hmm. So that is, that is some straight Elon aspirational uh, stuff yeah. right there. Um, that's Elon time in the extreme, but <laughs> like if something takes three times as long as he says it does, that's still very impressive. But uh, I suspect, well, there's no, I can't think of a reason why. And maybe I'm sure he has them. In mm-hmm. fact, I think he's talked about it. Why would you need to refly? in under an hour my, my my guess is that in his his ultimate view is that they're just sort of they're launching these things like you know it's almost like a commercial airline you know what i mean they had to do a lot of refueling in low earth orbit to be able to do some of their mm-hmm. more ambitious stuff right and if he wants to send not just a spacecraft to mars but you know a whole friggin armada there right to be able to populate it with people you know, you got to be able to just refuel, like, you know, wham, bam, you know, get them done. And so, yes, yeah, Sai is saying in the chat, he mentioned like three to four flights a day per booster, which, I mean, yeah, it's commercial airlines. But of course, this could really only mean, well, I guess there are other scenarios, but, um, you know, you, you need this booster to send things to the moon or to Mars. So we're talking about three to four flights per day for that, because obviously, if you're talking about point to point transport on, you know, Earth, which is another thing that you could use mm-hmm. this for, but you would need the booster. So, it seems that we're talking about something that would, you know, require the booster, which is heavy lift, which means that you're really going somewhere or lifting something very, very heavy, and you need to do that several times per day. Yeah, like imagine you wanted to have two Starship uh, Mars flights, say, I guess I don't know, and and so and that's going to take let's take let's say that takes only just you know one Leo refueling. Well, then you know you you're, you're one super heavy. I mean, I'm sure you know the 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 phasing and everything wouldn't work out, but you can imagine like a super heavy taking one up. Coming back down, taking another up, <laughs> come back down, let those two refuel, and then the fueled one tr- head off to Mars, and then basically you repeat that before, you know, the 24 hours is up. I don't know. Like, <laughs> I, I, like I, that's not really a realistic profile, but, like, that sort of thing is my sense, is that, like, you know, you just got to keep throwing these things up there nonstop because of the the one kind of, I don't know if it's, I mean, I, it seems like a disadvantage to me, though, but, like, is, is that, you know, Starship does need to do these orbital refuelings, you know what I mean? And that's fine if, mm-hmm. if you just build the sort of infrastructure and ability to be able to make that work. But, you know, it's it's just such a high cadence to pull it off, it seems to me. I don't know. Well, like you said, there are, you know, like orbital phasing issues. So even if you send up the Starship first and then you need to refuel, there would be no point in sending it up in less than an hour because it would be on the other side of the right. planet. Right. Yeah, you'd so. want to, yeah, like... Who knows how many pads he wants to have ultimately and how many super heavies kind of, you know, fire one after the other, which would be something. I mean, could you imagine like, you know, how we park ourselves, like, you know, if you're waiting at your gate, you know, and you're seeing other planes taking off, you could just kind (laughs) of like Boca Chica gal just watching, you know, (laughs) three or four super heavies uh, and starships launching, you know, (laughs) in a single day. That'd be something. From different pads, you know? Wow. So, yeah, I mean, as far as reflying in under an hour, maybe that's just... I think that's aspirational at this point. And let's, you know, 
maybe in the 2030s, you know, <laughs> things can refine yeah. under an hour. Uh, but I don't know. Maybe I'm just I'm bearish on that. So, uh, you know, another pro, too, is that, you know, this would put the load on uh, the grid fins, which, you know, I mean, mm. I'm not a you know an engineer, but I can imagine that, you know, th these are these <laughs> these are these big hefty, you know, things. And, you know, by putting the load on them, I'm sure you can design it in such a way that that basically is a lot uh, a lot easier on the vehicle than basically um, if you, I don't know, uh, land. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, like, that's a pro, but isn't that like also potentially a con? Because although the grid fins themselves are very structurally stable, the point at which they attach to the super heavy, that seems kind of tricky. Like you're going to have to like, you know, suspend a whole rocket from the top, which is something that I guess is done, you know, like, I mean, it just seems to me that generally you have thrust and you have the thing sitting on the pad, but, you know, holding it from the top dangling it that seems a bit odd but i mean they do yeah. that already with falcon 9 when they you know have to pull it off of the drone or whatever mm -hmm. um but they have to put on a side i think a special brace there to kind of like pick it up from the center and actually i think that that's a perfect segue though because you used a word that you know i think is very evocative of kind of what's happening here is this thing is going to be dangling you know, if it if it lands this way. And I I pulled up some numbers, you know, just went to Wikipedia because Super Heavy's huge, right? So you're going to have something that's 72 meters or 236 feet, which is a 22-story high building, if I did the conversion right, and 180,000 kilograms or 400,000 pounds empty, which is comparable to Saturn V's, uh, you know, the three stages if they were all empty. And you're going to have that dangling. That seems amazing. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and actually, Valentin brings up a good point, which is that the grid fins maybe already take a pretty hefty load because, you know, that's what happens during descent. But I actually don't know that myself. Mm. I don't know what kind of dynamic pressure you have on those grid fins. Um, yeah. I actually never thought about that. Yeah, I think um, I think uh, I was looking at uh, some, uh, some forums related to this because of just how surprising this was and everything and i saw uh you know ben hallert uh posting in there and i think uh he was he was talking quite a bit about how much you know load that the yeah the griffins have to take during descent and so yeah that's a that's a great point down yeah so it might be one starship or i guess one super heavy's worth of weight um <laughs> and of course this is without much fuel at this point so you're not having to carry all that fuel so, you know, I suppose uh, feasible um, in that sense. Um, but, yeah, taking that load just uh, – it seems like, you know, there's like a joint and joints always seem very, like, delicate to me. Mm -hmm. Or I guess I should say hinge maybe. Hinge, joint, whatever. Mm -hmm. But, uh, like, oh, that might snap or something, you know, like when it's coming down and, and it could just blow sure, a sure. joint and, you know, swing the other way and the thing could tilt and fall through that catchment device of, or, like, whatever it is, that little – I don't know, that uh, ground hook, you know, kind of like a sky hook maybe kind mm. of thing. I don't know. I guess that brings up the next question. What is that going to look like? How is that going to work? Um, we've already seen some interesting renders. Um, I'm just trying to imagine how you catch something when you have this massive booster coming down and it, you know, still has to translate a little bit generally. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe not. Like maybe it's just going to come straight down and it's going to land nice and snugly right. in there with a little bit of room because the grid fins are something like nine meters in length. So you mm -hmm. have, I guess, that much to play with. Yeah. And so, right, there's the, there's the four grid fins. So there are like, you know, if you imagine, depending on how you want to use the Power to catch it, there's going to be some orientations in terms of like roll where like, you know, your fins are going to basically be landing, you know, more easily or landing more difficultly, you know, what I mean? and um, 
that's that's kind of the, the the wild thing too because yeah it seems like a lot of the talk is all about how accurate can you get this because there are some advantages to you know a super heavy over the you know people are using the, the data we have now is how accurate is a falcon 9 at landing you know what i mean and they're mm -hmm. very different vehicles for sure you know the the they're very different boosters and so the the Falcon 9, you know, can't do one thing that the Super Heavy can do, which is to hover. And that's one of the cons is that, you know, that means if you need your Super Heavy to hover so that you can really kind of pinpoint the, you know, stick the landing in terms of accuracy after you've shed a lot of velocity. Because, you know, when you're still coming in hot, I mean, that that's going to be quite difficult to kind of, you know, get that pinpoint accuracy, I, I think. But uh, the, the Super Heavy, you know, has a hot, a hot gas a RCS system um, and with three times the diameter, but six times the mass, it should be less affected by winds. Uh, Elon has evidently said this at some point. Uh, and so maybe those conspiring along with, you know, a, a hover at, you know, an appropriate time when you're not too far, you know, you can basically, you know, stick it. And then, I mean, as far as something to watch, that would be ridiculous. I mean. mm -hmm. And I think that that's why I kind of thought to myself at first, like, you know, if Falcon 9 could hover and if it didn't have to land on a drone ship sometimes, then maybe this would have mm -hmm. been how they would always do it, you know. Mm -hmm. But Falcon 9 as it is, it does not come in with that much accuracy. It's still, you know, a little bit all over that landing zone. Yeah. So, yeah, this is going to have to be pretty precise. Which which is something, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm always, you know, in danger when I'm firing from from the hip, but one thing that I was think wondering is like, and I and I think people had considered versions of this. Um, in fact, there's there's a pretty cool Reddit thread we'll we'll link where uh, someone references you know well before any of this conversation happened about trying to catch um, uh, super heavy boosters using a uh, a series of um, cables essentially that can kind of close in on it. And so, what about like you know having Whatever you know, configuration your launch tower is basically giving a, a a pretty big margin of error, and then being able to kind of I don't know have your arms of the tower or whatever kind of come in close and essentially grab it, and so you're going to put some sideways forces on it eventually when you capture it, but maybe you could pad or like do something to make it less painful, but basically make it so that your your error ellipse for landing, you know, you have more tolerance as you are slowing down, and then have your landing. Your your launch tower catcher work in union unison with the the super heavy booster. I don't know. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you're talking about something kind of like a clamp that kind of you know closes in around. Yeah, maybe maybe imagine a gigantic clamp that's like I don't know five times the the diameter of the super heavy. You know what I mean? And as it gets closer and closer, that clamp gets smaller and smaller, but also might not be dead center in the in the launch pad. You know, although maybe that would make taking off an issue. I don't know, make a really big launch pad. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I don't know. I, like, that was something I was thinking. I don't know if engineeringly it's it's re reasonable to try to do something like that. I don't think it's ever going to clamp on onto the rocket itself, but yeah, it could have, you know, a couple of arms oh, that, you yeah, know, yeah. coming closer right. uh, That's, for yeah. those grid fins to set down on. And it might also be the case, and it seems, well, I don't know if this would be necessary, but also if maybe the landing area where it sets down and or is um you know captured is perhaps like kind of like swiveled to the side so that it's not directly over the launch pad itself but i don't know if that's really something that would be necessary because um hmm. 
or even practical because you're going to have other equipment there. So I suppose not. So I guess never mind. Um, mm -hmm. I, but yeah, I was just thinking like maybe you could capture it somewhere else and then you could just, you know, swivel it on over to where it launches because I mean, I don't know why, but yeah. um, we've seen those animations where it kind of picks up the booster from the side and then it props it down on, on the launch pad and then it picks up the starship and then it sets it down on top of the booster, mm -hmm. you know, so it kind of has this, you know, um, you know, kind of like a typical crane thing going on there, but yeah, so it has, you know, yeah, you can build it in with the ability to kind of translate around, which is both good yeah. for catching it as well as for plopping it, you know, dead center for your, your next launch in 50 minutes or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But that really depends on how quickly you could actually perform that action because we're still probably talking about, you know, a couple of seconds here. And if you, and if you have a giant piece of, you know, mm. you know, crane equipment here that has to close mm -hmm. in. I think I'd seen that being discussed on the SpaceX subreddit, which is, you know, of course, talking about this nonstop. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like, how do you um, grab something with uh, a giant, I don't know what you call it, a, you know, a giant clamp or even just something that mm -hmm. doesn't clamp? I don't know. I mean, perhaps the Starship, or I'm sorry, uh, the booster just has to come in and stick the landing. And like that, that seems mm -hmm. like the most likely scenario to me. So Khan says Falcon 9 stages land with, you know, an open loop control, no communication with the drone ship or landing pad, but mm. maybe Super Heavy will have some different terminal guidance. Yeah, I have no idea. Mm. That's a good question. I, I think, I think, yeah, I, I, I think you kind of might be getting at exactly why my idea wouldn't quite work because that's, that's moving mm. a lot of mass quickly. The tower, right? The support structure, like being able to move that around fast enough might just not be feasible. Yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely going to be some differences in the, you know, terminal guidance just because we're talking about a booster that can hover. So whatever it's going to do, but I'm pretty much completely out of my depth when it comes to open loop control systems and stuff like that. That's more of a Ben thing. And that's why he should be here. He knows about that better than I do. I, I'd like to think he's yelling at yeah. uh, his uh, his phone or whatever he's listening to this podcast uh, when it airs and like, no, you fools. <laughs> so, you know, that, that, leads to both a pro and a con you know the, the con is that you know you're putting the launch stand in danger every time you pull one of these right <laughs> um as we know i mean spacex like you love to always point out which is absolutely true is that they've made landing the boosters almost uh i'll say routine but i mean boring has been you know mentioned a number of times in a good way right i mean they just kind of it's just it's just routine now you know they're just nailing it yeah but you know of course there's been a long you know history of you know things exploding and so that puts the stands in danger if you're going to have this thing which is you know dramatically larger than a falcon 9 trying to get caught and then dangle appropriately you know uh, with its griffins and so that's cool but then i like you know that you know related to something that we had talked about when during a recent starship right so the upper stage now starship uh test firing we had a long discussion during that episode about you know how you know, they weren't going to have uh, flame trenches for their landing pads. And so, you know, one of us had floated at one point, you know, well, this is talking about, you know, a, a Starship prototype with uh, only three Raptors under it. How are you going to do that for, you know, the, the full-on Starships, let alone the full-on Super Heavies? And 
this you know solves that for the super heavies at least because you can basically you know make the landing pad safe essentially to it you know what i mean you, yeah. you can put enough distance between there you can have your water suppression and whatnot um system firing to kind of basically not blow off the it wasn't it wasn't concrete but whatever that uh stuff was on top that you know uh, that, that that special <laughs> that special something that the uh, launch pad was coated with for sure this would protect the pad um plus it would protect the engines because you don't get any of that blowback you know they could potentially damage them so <laughs> that is another big plus so i guess we could tick that one off i mean i'm not keeping score but you know pros and cons <laughs> yeah you kind of have to weigh them so ben hallert is is mentioning in the chat that i think everyone's overthinking the new super heavy landing plan seems like they're essentially moving the landing gear to the top of the rocket which that's true i don't know like i'm at least i'm not an expert i'm just like what are the implications of that i guess you know <laughs> but i mean at least falcon 9 can you know somewhat land wherever it wants within reason it seems that this is going to be way trickier because you know you're going to have to come in with a little bit more accuracy but maybe mm. not because just as i said you have nine meter grid fins and you know assuming that uh, there's a, you know a little bit of play there uh that might be within the same tolerances as something like a falcon 9 landing now because like if you look at the falcon 9 when it lands on the landing pad back at the cape um mm. it's probably within that range maybe you know mm. like i mean it's not off by too much it's just not dead center, but it's pretty close. So the grid fins are about the same uh, length as the super heavy's diameter. So you can think of, you know, you wanting to basically get within at an absolute minimum three diameters of the center. Or at least the you know your aiming aperture. I don't know what, <laughs> what to call it. But <laughs> yeah, so I'm thinking as we go through this that maybe we are kind of, you know, or at least I'm finding myself more one over. Like, okay, okay, okay. Maybe he's yeah. right. <laughs> Maybe you can do this, and it's not insane. Yeah, and and it's not something that hasn't been uh, considered before, <laughs> right? I mean, uh, evidently there's been uh, patents for this uh, granted back in the '50s, and um, there's there's a really cool uh, image that we'll uh, have to put in the show notes that uh, Valentin has shared also in uh, our Discord. Where, you know, it, like this is just straight up old school looking, you know, sci-fi uh, landing systems, but, you know, mm -hmm. basically doing this sort of crazy thing. And there's there's one, though, this, this image that uh, has been patented where you've got a bunch of tubes mounted on skis on a train platform, and then your rocket ship is guided into the end of the outer tube by radar which would then slide along <laughs> the rails <laughs> and basically hit the brakes to basically shed off the velocity of the rocket coming that, in. Yeah, that is some Wile E. Coyote <laughs> stuff right there. I don't... A reverse telescoping gun barrel. Wow, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like firing a giant rocket from a gun barrel except that the bullet is going back in like that. That doesn't seem like a good idea. It's uh, something special. Compared to that, this seems pretty tame. So yeah. I'll go with SpaceX's idea here. So I'm suspecting that when testing this, eventually, like whenever that happens, they won't be doing it on the launch pad, but they'll have a separate pad just for landing. And, you know, once they get that down, then, you know, they can actually integrate the two. Sure, um, sure. But you're, but you're probably not going to want to blow up your launch site, which is almost bound to happen, you know, <laughs> during the early days of testing this. So. Yeah, especially since the... Uh... The SN8 flight, one of the things we were talking about a lot was how 
close it was to so much other infrastructure on its final descent, yeah. you know, its final approach. So speaking of the SN8, let's do SN9. So <laughs> um, the update on that. So that's actually been rolled out to the launch site, and I'm sure it will probably not have lifted off by the time this comes out, which is just a couple of days from now. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it could be any day now. And we were talking about a couple of weeks ago what had happened in the high bay, because there was, I think that we did know at least that it was the SN9 vehicle, that it was actually tilted and kind of like like up against one of the inner walls of mm-hmm. the high bay. Turns out that that was because it was already on the transport to be mm-hmm. rolled out, and then the transport mount or a section of the transport mount collapsed, and that's what caused it to topple oh. in the high bay. Yeah, so that explains yeah. that. So, um, in fact, it actually would have been rolled out sooner um, mm-hmm. had that not happened. That damaged one of its fins, right, on the one side. I think it, so, it yeah. Did, it didn't land on, I guess, you know, on, on the, the main body of the spacecraft. Right. Yeah, and so they had to go in there with a big crane and kind of pull it back uh. upright. <laughs> <laughs> it's now been rolled out. Another little tweet update per Elon is that to resolve the issue that they had with SN8, they're going to be using helium for uh, some tank back pressure for that header tank. Now, the Starship tanks, I believe they're all supposed to be autogenously pressurized. Um, but in this case, they're going to use helium to fix that problem. But he did tweet that he's not sure what the long-term solution is. So this mm-hmm. might just be, you know, something temporary. Um, but for now, they're just going to stick some helium in there, you know, which is probably easy enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't see how much more difficult that could make, you know, a test. But as far as how the vehicle will operate on, you know, a day-to-day basis, you know, assuming that it launches like, you know, three or four times a day, <laughs> then, yeah, I don't know. Um, Or at least like SpaceX does not know yet. So, right. but that's how they're going to fix that for now. So hopefully we'll be seeing serial number nine, you know, within a week or two. It's just great. <laughs> and, and, and I've even seen tweets about serial number 10 starting to get assembled. So let's do another two short and sweet, just like last, well, two weeks ago with Ben. Uh, we're just going to do the two. <laughs> Slow news week, plus there's just two of us once again. Uh, so the first thing is a Long March 8 successfully debuts. China's latest medium lift launch vehicle lifted off from its Hainan launch center on December 21st, successfully putting its payload of five satellites into a sun-synchronous orbit. The Long March 8 can carry a payload of 4.5 metric tons, stands at 50 meters tall, and weighs 392 tons. And as part of the new Long March series of rocket this vehicle burns non-toxic propellants, unlike the previous generation of long marches. Eventually, its first stage will be made reusable with the center core and side boosters landing as a single unit with the aid of grid fins and landing legs. And I don't know if you've seen the animation of this, but there is one, but it looks pretty crazy. Like, you should check that out. Yeah. And then we've got the protection of lunar heritage sites signed into law. The One Small Step to Protect Human Heritage in Space Act was signed by President Trump on New Year's Eve. The bill is designed to protect heritage sites on the moon, like the Apollo 11 landing site, and applies to NASA's partnership agreements with companies to conduct lunar activities. Now a requirement for lunar grants with NASA will include following recommendations from 2011 related to the protection of these sites. Earlier this year, NASA also included protecting lunar heritage sites in its Artemis courts, which have so far been signed on by nine nations, with a tenth, Brazil, intending to sign as well. All right, uh, let's press on to this week in spaceflight history, and we have just two winners, so I think that was a pretty good clue. The winners are Ben Hallett and Kyle Foster. Um, We had one other incorrect guess from the Greek somewhat partially in the ballpark since uh, it did have something to do yeah it was it was yeah semi correct it was semi correct it, it wasn't quite what we were uh, intending for but you know yeah. that's the kind of the thing about these clues sometimes it's like you can have your answer 
fit the clue if you're, you know, if you're clever enough, you know what I mean? And yeah. it's, and it's, le- it's a legitimate fit. And so yeah. it's a partial credit. You know, I, I certainly want to give the Greek for that. So the clue was headed for a first close to home. So I can see how that'd be a little bit cryptic. Yeah. So, so, so this was uh, a clue that, uh, Ben, uh, came up with and he, he intended though for me to give the, the history behind it. And I'm, I'm glad he did because he knows this is the kind of thing I love, uh, cause I'm a, I'm a big Jaxa fan. And so, yeah, this was the 7th of January, 1985. And it was the launch of the Sakigake probe, um, which means uh, pioneer or forerunner in Japanese. And so that's, as you can imagine, uh, being a first close to home, that's the first. It was uh, uh, the first uh, of a certain type of space probe to come from uh, Japan. And so uh, it was developed by the Institute of Space and Astronautical Science, uh, or ISAS. I don't know if it's ISIS or ISAS, but um, uh, this is one of the three organizations, if you recall, and earlier, you know, this week in spaceflight history uh, about the formation of JAXA, right? A bureaucratic Voltron. And this was one of the three, (laughs) one of the three institutes that came together to form it. I think of them as, correctly or not, but they they strike me as kind of like the, the JPL of, you know, the, the JAXA, because they still exist as their own kind of entity. They just have kind of been, they're now under the umbrella of JAXA, but they, um, they're kind of like the JPL. They're, they're, they're about the, you know, the research itself, the, you know, the developing the probes and spacecraft themselves, which ultimately are going to get launched on, uh, NASDA rockets, for example, right? NASDA is, was the, you know, the pre-JAXA rocket people, I guess. <laughs> so the first in particular that made this a pioneer or forerunner was it was the first interplanetary probe of Japan, which uh, basically parks them in uh, third place after, at this point, the the United States and, you know, the Soviet Mm -hmm. Union, of course, this is 1985, so they had been sending interplanetary probes for a while now during, you know, the space race and after the space race, but this is the first, uh, the third country to manage to get a probe, you know, out beyond uh, Earth orbit, uh, Earth and lunar orbit. And so, in particular, it was launched on a uh, M3S2 rocket. Okay, I'll talk a little bit about those in a moment. Uh, from the uh, Kagoshima uh, Launch Center, which is now Uchinoura, if you're uh, familiar with that one, one of one of the kind of key you know launch centers for you know Japan. It, it was part of the uh, the Mu uh, solid fueled series, and so this was you know uh, a number of stages that were all solid fueled. Um, the the first ones uh, in this you know were flying in 1966 uh, suborbital, so it was kind of you know you know a, a pretty long lineage of uh, rockets uh, coming from Japan. So this lineage had gone back almost 20 years, and so this was the first time that the uh, the the M three S two configuration in particular had uh, flown. And just like you know, typical evolutions of launch rocket or of rocket you know launch vehicles, they you know, they keep getting bigger, you know, maybe you add boosters, uh, you know, strap on boosters at some point and things like that. But it was still an all solid rocket. Sakigake in particular, right, it was the first probe, but it was less about the science. Um, there was science that was done with it uh, and, and a lot of science for sure uh, in terms of uh, uh, length of time and also importance. But, uh, in you know, the keys that it was designed to test was uh, the performance of the launch vehicle. Right. Because, again, this was its maiden flight of the M3S2 uh, that, uh, you know, how to plan and determine orbits in interplanetary space. Right. I mean, this is non-trivial, you know, for a new nation to be doing for the for a nation to be doing for the first time. 
as well as uh, taking care of uh, long-range communications, uh, guidance, navigation, control of an interplanetary spacecraft, etc. So, I mean, it really was kind of a uh, you know a forerunner, and so a very appropriate name. So, so it was launched uh, again uh, on the seventh of January, and so you know a little over a month later, on the nineteenth and twentieth of February of that year, uh, 85, uh, the antennas and instrument booms were deployed. The high voltage power was turned on. Everything was healthy and good and nominal, and it was ready to go. And so the spacecraft itself, as you can imagine, an early one, you know, being, uh, wasn't terribly large. Uh, it was 138 kilograms. So it wasn't nothing, uh, 1.4 meters in diameter and, uh, 0.7 meters in height. So 70 centimeters in height. So, you know, it's something that, you know, it wasn't, you know, one of these biggies. This, you know, this forerunner, Sakigake, had three instruments uh, that were on that, you know, that boom that was, you know, uh, extended in February. And uh, it included, it was all about basically uh, measuring interplanetary space. And so even though uh, this spacecraft had a destination, um, its science uh, really was all about interplanetary space. And so it had a solar wind ion monitor, uh, a plasma wave monitor, uh, right. So basically you're measuring, you know, uh, radio fields coming from, you know, uh, the interplanetary plasma coming from the sun and then a magnetometer for uh, what was the magnetometer for solar wind and interplanetary science. So a magnetometer. And so, you know, we've mentioned these in other contexts, too, you know, in terms of stereo, you, you want to have these kind of instruments for measuring, you know, interplanetary space. And so none of these are quite right. Uh, actually, maybe the, the solar wind ion monitor, I have to assume there isn't a wealth of information about the spacecraft available. But uh, one of those, it sounds like, was in situ while the other ones were, you know, one was a radio, you know, antenna, essentially, and the other was a magnetometer. And so I guess that's what, two in situ and one radio uh, remote sensing experiment. It was a spin-stabilized spacecraft, and uh, it didn't just, you know, go and kind of wander, meander around, you know, interplanetary space, but it actually was part of the uh, infamous Halley's Armada. And so along with uh, the two Vega spacecraft, one and two, and uh, the Giotto uh, spacecraft from ESA, it also, uh, eight months later in August, had a twin that was more about imaging called Suisei, which is a, uh, which means comet. Uh, literally, it means water star, but that's, that's the term for oh, comet that's in cool. Japanese. Yeah. Oh, they, they have great names for the stars and planets. <laughs> so, uh, you know, on its way to Halley as part of the Armada, it did its flyby, its closest approach on March 11th, uh, 1986 at 6.99 million kilometers. Now, that is, you know, relatively close. Uh, for context, the Earth orbits the sun at roughly 150 million kilometers. And so it got just, you know, a shade, uh, a shade within 7 million kilometers of Halley's Comet. Now, the rest of the Armada, right, including uh, Giotto in particular, uh, at least that one for sure, flew much, much closer to uh, Halley's Comet. Like we're talking like, I think less than 200,000 kilometers, if I remember correctly, right? So that it was straight up in the coma. This, you know, forerunner, uh, Sakigake, uh, was in particular designed to, you know, essentially do, you can think of it as just a background subtraction, right? It was it was measuring a lot of the, you know, interplanetary data uh, far enough away from Halley that you could make those measurements, Giotto could make its measurements, and then you could basically subtract Gakisake's from Giotto's and be able to tell what contribution of what Giotto was measuring came from Haley itself and not just being part of the ambient interplanetary background. And so that was pretty cool. But the, the reference of the clue, which I thought was very clever on Ben's end, was that so headed for a first close to home, the first was being the first, you know, interplanetary spacecraft, but as far as how far out it went, I mean, its orbit was essentially one AU. You know what I mean? It wasn't a, it wasn't a, a 
probe to, you know, Venus or Mars or, you know, another planetary body you know, or another planet. It, it was to another planetary body, but it still had, you know, a perihelion. Uh, Sakigake had a perihelion of 0.92 AU and an aphelion of 1.15 AU. So it was within 15% of the Earth's distance from the sun, essentially, right? And so as you can imagine, that's close to home in a sense for, you know, it's certainly yeah. interplanetary. It was on a heliocentric orbit. But it wasn't exactly, you know, shooting off to, you know, uh, uh, 1.5 AU or 0.7 AU uh, or anything like that. So I thought I thought that was a very uh, uh, clever way to phrase it. So thank you, Ben, for that clue. And so um, after, you know, you know, it does its flyby and that's that, you know, Haley eventually, you know, is on its way out. Afterwards, though, you still have this spacecraft in a heliocentric orbit and it's got these measurements for, you know, measuring the interplanetary space. It flew by Earth uh, as well as uh, a couple flybys in the Earth's magnetic tail, which got some good measurements for, you know, Earth-related science and how, you know, the Earth interacts with uh, the solar wind and the sun's magnetic field. As we now know, um, Hayabusa 2, right, the the, the recent sample return uh, spacecraft uh, from JAXA uh, is going to, you know, head on off to uh, some more targets. Uh, but even, you know, in the case of uh, Sakigake, uh, they were looking at sending it uh, all over to uh, Comet 21P uh, Giacobini-Zinner in 1998. But uh, unfortunately, it didn't have enough propellant to be able to uh, do that. And so it basically just continued doing, you know, interplanetary plasma and magnetic field science for a good 14 years, though. Sorry, that 14 years uh, I quoted from uh, a source, but it looks like the telemetry was lost in November of 95. So I guess that would be more like 10 years of proper interplanetary yeah. science. Uh, but its beacon stayed alive for another four years. So we, we saw a contact with it for 14 years. Maybe there was something you could do without getting telemetry just by passively observing the spacecraft. I don't know. I didn't really look into that. But in any event, you know, it was a long-lived craft. And even so, you know, 10 years of interplanetary science from the first thing that you threw beyond the Earth's uh, orbit, you know, good job. <laughs> yeah. So, David, uh, next week, which is uh, January 12th through the 18th, um, do you have a clue for us? Yeah. So next week, the clue is in 1997, so fairly recent, and the clue is RIP or R-I-P. And if you think you know what that is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. So let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. Um, no launches, but a couple of events happening, you know, already in space. So, it, yeah, it's neat, as always. I mean, you, uh, keep an eye out on, uh, on Wednesday, January 6th. Uh, at 9.45 a.m. on NASA TV will be the release of uh, the Northrop Grumman Cygnus CRS-14 cargo spacecraft from the uh, ISS. Um, with the uh, release scheduled at 10:10 10, a.m., and so this is, uh, you know, a, a you know a Cygnus with all its uh, cool little payloads on board, including uh, David's favorite Sapphire, which is uh, the mm -hmm. good old uh, fire uh, experiment, uh, which will be uh, its fifth and second to last uh, uh, Sapphire on this one. And so, um, yeah. So again, that's 9:45 a.m. is when it starts, uh, with the release scheduled at 10:10 10, 10 a.m. Eastern time. Eastern time. Yep. Not UTC since yes, uh, I guess we're not going to be doing that for, yeah. UTC, we'll just do those for launches, <laughs> but otherwise it's East Coast time, huh? And then on January 11th at uh, nine in the morning, 9 a.m., uh, is the coverage of the undocking of the SpaceX CRS-21 cargo Dragon craft from the ISS. So that coverage, yes, yeah, starts at 9 a.m., but the actual undocking is scheduled for 9.25 a.m. Uh, and again, that's Eastern time. Yeah, definitely check that one out. Yeah. And then finally, just as uh, David had mentioned, earlier in the show, uh, you know, keep an eye out for uh, uh, Starship uh, SN9 possibly doing its test flight 
Uh, we don't have anything officially scheduled, and we do record a few days before this is going to drop on uh, your favorite podcatcher. But, uh, you know, just keep an eye out for that because that's going to be really exciting whenever it happens. And, of course, we're saying keep an eye out for it, but the chances are I'll probably miss it myself. So, <laughs> um, But I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep up. Do as you know, I say, with, uh, not as I do. Right? Yeah. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Which means let's hear what the show. So we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show as well, please leave a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check out our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody, and see you.